Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. So today we have the honor to interview again a group of sports performance experts. So first we have Dr. Bill Burgos, an experienced NBA strength and conditioning coach and adjunct professor at two universities, uh, Mississippi State and Austin Peay State University. So uh, welcome back, Bill. Hey, thank you for having me again. <laughs> Great. So, uh, and then we have Alexi Pianosi, strength and conditioning coach for the Pittsburgh Penguins, a top NHL team. So uh, welcome back, uh, Alexi, as well. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, and then uh, we have Pierre Barrier, an experienced high-performance director and FIFA expert. So uh, welcome back, Pierre, as well. Hey, thanks, Julian. Hi, everybody. Great. So, and then we have Adam, uh, Adam uh, Quingley, an experienced athletic trainer in the MLS. Uh, he's also worked with various U.S. national soccer teams. So uh, welcome, Adam, as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So, uh, so guys, what I wanted to discuss with you today was, uh, first, we'll talk about the usage of wearables in elite sports. Uh, there's been some studies being done around that, which I think are interesting. And then we'll talk about chat GPT, uh, what pe people call the generative AI in sports. Love to get your take on that. And then we'll touch on the emergence of robotics in elite sports. Uh, and then lastly, we'll talk about the stability in the world of elite sports. So, hey, so look, the first topic I want to discuss uh, was about the usage of wearables in elite sports. So uh, there's been some studies, and actually Bill sent, sent that study over to me, uh, that have shown that, uh, I think it was a study done in the NCA teams, that only 70% of the, the teams that bought some wearables only use those wearables weekly, which means that 30% of those teams were not using the wearables that they bought and there was a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it could be because of the lack of accurate data, or you know, it doesn't fit into the workflow of those teams. So, first question to you guys is: Are you surprised by those findings? And have you experienced this kind of trend uh, in a team environment that you work for? So, anybody wants to start? I, I can go on this one. You know, so yeah, because obviously, as a head of performance, I've been confronted to this situation times because you arrive in teams and uh, and basically you inherit a bunch of technologies that have been used by previous coaches you know whether it's performance technical coaches and at the end of the day then you have there's what i can describe as a trap game of technology a lot of them of each other you know uh which shouldn't be the case but eventually you get to tackle the issue and decide you know first of all what you know what what you use in the, what's your own philosophy what are, and then that's number one what's really important to you number two and number three do you have the expertise slash knowledge slash time to uh, optimize everything you have so for me at the end of the day i know it's one of the this topic is a byproduct of the last topic you mentioned julian which is the the stability in elite sports 
the, the, the turnover with the staffs is a big reason why you have um, technology in, in teams that end up not being used. That's, that's, that's from point. my experience, you know. And so, uh, and then again, some people use different technology or more familiar or more experienced, uh, you know, with some brands. And, uh, and sometimes it's not easy to get out of your comfort zone. So, um, yeah, I'm not surprised at all by the, the 70-30. I would say that, you know, it's, I would have guessed it would be more than that. So Even more? Yeah. That's, that's, these are my two senses. Okay, great. Uh, who wants to go next? I, I can kind of add on to what Pierre said there, because I think the, the analogy, the traffic jam of information is definitely uh, pervasive, I think, in, in the world of sports. And I think when you talk about wearables, the, there can be such a broad spectrum of wearables, something as simple as a heart rate monitor, which has been around for decades and decades and is very common. And then you have newer technologies, you know, the Aura, the Whoop. Uh, now we're getting glucose mm-hmm. sensors. We're getting hydration patches. So you know, that could also be defined as a wearable, but, you know, it's, it's longevity is far, far uh, inferior to something like heart rate monitoring. So a lot of people probably use heart rate monitoring technologies, but, you know, it might be a little more sparse for things like the hydration or the glucose sensor or or and whoop. Um, the 70-30 thing, I, I never really thought about in terms of how many people use or don't use, because again, you can use such a wide variety of products. But one thing I've noticed in more recent years some of the newer technologies like the Auras, like the Whoops, is we people are very quick to adopt them and start using them, but then mm-hmm. their their continuity tends to fade off. You know, you use it for a month, use it for two months, you look at it every day, and then next thing you know, you haven't looked in three months or six months. You know, no one's even wearing their Aura ring anymore or their, you know, whatever whatever the technology might be. So I think that stems from some of what Pierre said, not understanding the reason why you're wearing it and not articulating the problem that you have, whether it's an individual problem, a team problem, or an organizational problem, and then adopting that technology as a solution to that problem, and then using the data you collect from that piece of technology or that wearable to answer that problem. If you really truly have a problem, and that piece of technology is going to be the answer to your problem, I think you're much more likely to use that uh, data and then continue to use that product. And then when a product can be used in such a manner, I think you're more likely to see those numbers creep above 70 up into the 100 percentile range when people can consistently answer and solve problems with that technology. Yeah, I think I like your point on the engagement, right? And also, if it's the same data as it did, doesn't change much, the usage is going to drop, right? There's no big variations, right? Also, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, technologies that measure load and, and, and internal response or external movement, you know, things like that, I think you're going to see people are continuing to monitor that and use that information. So we'll probably see an increase in the number of users that um, things like HRV, maybe a little bit less consistent, things like glucose, you know, uh, glucose sensors being probably less consistent amongst different individuals and teams. So um, I think that'll speak to sort of that, you know, the percentage of people using that kind of technology. Yeah, makes sense. But well, thank you, Alexi. Uh, who wants to go next? Bill, Adam, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and add. Um, there's two things, and, I, and I'm going to basically piggyback on. I think we're all piggybacking off each other. <laughs> but yeah. um, Pierre is right. So, you know, we, we do get trapped. We get into this new environment, and we end up, you know, adopting or inheriting this piece of technology that we probably didn't want in the first place. That's number one. And then number two is um, maybe you weren't part of the process when they started collecting this um this piece of technology for the system. And so it's now it's hard for you to adopt to it. So I, I think 
I know in healthcare settings, when it comes to electronic medical records, EMR systems, before they actually choose a system, they bring everybody as a whole who's, always go, who's all going to play a part in that to help make a decision on what's the best model to choose. So my thought process is, in, and I've experienced it, I know that certain sports teams or organizations don't have everybody included, even though they're part of the process, which is like the coach and so on and so forth. So I think if we could do a better job in bringing those individuals in so they can understand what it is before bringing it in, then I think there would be a, a better adoption rate. And I think we will actually use it the way it's supposed to be used. Now, to address the, uh, the thing that Alex, Alexi was saying was um, in terms of, you know, how we use it in the beginning and then it tends to fade away in terms of the consistency. Well, my, my understanding is, is like I've seen it where I've been on a team where we've actually shared a lot of information, kept being consistent with the information. So the usage was always there. But then, then, then I've been on situations where we didn't share the information as much, and then it started to fade away. They're like, why am I wearing this if I'm not getting anything out of it? So I think it's up to the practitioner at that point to make sure that the information is being shared. Yeah, good point. Good point, uh, Bill. Adam, what's really your take point. on that? What's your experience? Yeah, it, it's overall a, a combination of, I'd say, intention-based utilization. Like, you need someone to manage it and observe, analyze, and implement, but then you also need the environment to be receptive to the information. So if we have some wearable technology that, let's say, a, a football coach doesn't necessarily have a great educational background on how to use GPS monitoring, well, then you're trying to force this down you know, someone's throat that doesn't fully understand it, and then you're trying to make it a GPS environment versus a football environment with the analytical side to it. Um, and I think that across the board, I, I'm actually, I would be interested to see of that 70%, how many teams or clubs actually utilize, utilize, and don't just use. You know, like I, one of the past clubs I was at, the sports scientists or the, the head of performance stepped away. So then I was the person helping with the GPS monitoring. We were using GPS, I can update and upload the loads and look at, you know, tapers and things. But as far as a sports scientist, I'm nowhere near what a sports scientist is as far as utilizing that information. So we would have still checked the boxes using it. And so I think that uh, across the, the landscape of sport, we have a lot of opportunity to use these. But I think that it almost we have to have like up on the whiteboard every day like why are we using this and what's the purpose and then as we begin to to utilize the technology we have how we're going to use it you know are, are we going if we have a standard of if the aura ring you know or whoop band shows that their their readiness is below x we're going to shift it to this in this type of of context if it's a match day minus one or if it's on a match day it doesn't matter or does it? And that's where kind of the toss-up begins of how can we how can we actually use these to to shape our decisions, or is it just more data? Because if it is just more data, awesome, you know, and and that's okay too. So it's just I I would say from you know a sports medicine side of things, how do we use these to better the space that we're in versus completely change the landscape to a, a language that, you know, no one really understands. Yeah, uh, I think a big part of it is education too, right? 
because some some companies are very good at building products, but they're not very good at explaining how it works and and just uh, the support system, right? I think that comes with the technology too. I think that's critical. Um, hey, that bridges, sorry, that bridges and builds points together really well. If you're trying to decide what matters and what doesn't, if you don't have all the relevant stakeholders in the conversation determining what matters and what doesn't matter, then you, you, it's almost doomed to fail when when these guys decide, totally. hey, we should do this, and he has no idea and back mm -hmm. and forth. So it just kind of connects the dots between two really good points there. And, and yeah. real quick, it's, it's funny because I know we talk a lot. This is part of load management. And if you notice, we're talking about a problem in terms of use of wearable information, whether it's being interpreted correctly or managed correctly. If those things are a problem, then what do you think load management is within an organization if they're not doing those things properly? So, you know, you're giving misinformation, you're doing basically not the right things, you're kind of guessing. And so that really plays a part of it if you're going to include technology. Yep. All good point. So, uh, hey, yeah. uh, next topic. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. No, I mean, briefly, you know, because again, we touch about the expertise, we touch about the human side. The other reason as well is that. You know, from a purely commercial standpoint, you know, when you deal with all these contracts, these contracts are not one year contracts. So sometimes, you know, if, if uh, you know, there's progressing technology all the time, if one technology becomes obsolete and you're still stuck in a contract, then may, I'm trying to put reason behind that 70-30 and I'm trying to explain the 30. Um, you know, it could be, it could be as simple as, you know, another one and then, you know, contract running, so. It's uh, it happens more than you think. Yeah, uh, good point. So hey, uh, next next topic, you know, if you if you guys have heard, but there's been so much talk about what people call uh, you know, ChatGPT, right? They call it generative AI. There's a company called OpenAI that Microsoft invested in ten billion dollars, and they're going going after Google to disrupt the search uh, industry. So, but there are some implications with sports, right? So when it comes to sports technology. Generative AI can be used to analyze and optimize strategies to predict outcomes and even design training regimens tailored to the athletes. So what do you think are or could be the top use cases for those types of technologies in AD sports? Any thoughts, any ideas? I mean, do you think, I, I think that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to collect all this data, <laughs> all this information so they can help make decisions for us. So it can yeah. kind of save us times and we can start seeing these trends. And um, I, so I think, I think it's, I think it's important, but as still has to be managed correctly, but it all basically, it all boils down to the user as well, in terms of the data that's being collected, you know, because you, whatever AI is going to spit out, it has to make sense. But what we um, help put into the system, I guess, if that's the right way of saying it, it, it has to be the right information because everything I've read, especially when it comes to EMR, any type of um, thing dealing with technology always goes back to user error. You know whether or not using it correctly or inputting the wrong data. So I think with AI, you know, as long as it gets the right information, I think it would help in terms of how we program. Yeah, and, and I think uh, actually when we talked about those AI tools, right, the other day, uh, there's some issues I think that comes with it. For example, you know, I remember there was one AI software that was used by uh, Premier League club, and the guy was saying, "Look, I got flag. I got like 12 guys getting flagged now every single week." <laughs> So that's a problem, right? That's like the uh, alert fatigue, they call it, I think. Um, I was going to say the, yeah. the I, I should say that I have very little about ChatGPT and specifically, you know, AI, I'm a novice in space, but 
seems that, you know, that kind of technology's greatest strength could also be its greatest weakness. It gives you unbiased appraisal of trends and information, what you might not be seeing, but then it also might fail to, you know, anyone who's worked in a professional sports environment knows that the context changes so often and how a coach feels, how a player feels, how the team's performing, how this guy's performing changes on a day-to-day basis. And it might not be able to incorporate that context, but it could give you an unbiased view of some things that maybe you're overlooking with your own personal bias. So, uh, you know, it, its greatest strength could end up being its greatest weakness. But, you know, again, I think we're pretty early in that space. So we'll have to see how that uh, that unravels in the professional sports environment. Yeah, that was a good point. Uh, Pierre or Adam, do you guys want to go next on that one? Or? Well, I feel in the box of not too familiar with ChatGPT. You know, of course, I've seen some applications of, for the students mainly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, going back to, uh, I think it was, I think it was Bill was talking about it, or maybe Adam, about you know having technology providing answers and not asking questions. I think at this point, with the little like uh, the little time that we've had with this kind of technology, in my case, I think you probably ask questions more than provide answers. So it's about seeing way. I don't see like a short term, real real uh, advantage, you know, provided by by this. We're talking about ChatGPT, not AI, obviously. Uh, Sports, but uh, I'm sure I'd be surprised. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there'd be a lot of surprises. And uh, and again, you would go back down to people who really master their technology, trying to help other people u- utilizing, utilize, uh, yeah, using French, it <laughs> as best as they can. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. just have to give up and move on. Yeah. Um, I guess what you're yeah, Adam was making a scientist. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see. Um, it's going to it's going to take very clear conversation around it, and then a very clear goal driven question or input into the AI system. So, a, a client of mine yesterday was messing around with the the image generator, and some of the images were spot on, beautifully thrown together. Other ones, you were you know, you thought to yourself, what in the world is this? And if we're putting athletes health and performance and, and success on the line, you know, if you put into the, the generator some type of number that's potentially a bit par- a bit wrong, it, is it going to swing the, the answer so then far out of right field that, that it could be very mm-hmm. problematic? And so I think that the the use of it has to be um very clear and but but what i do what i would foresee happening is the sports world and 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 even in in performance entertainment we will utilize this space as a different variable and if it works in our favor we'll lean on it and if it goes against what we want to do then we'll say i must have gotten this one wrong um and go from there but but i do think the the tech of kind of what, what what bill summarized was um it it will end up taking the emotion out of the decision making if we put in all of this data to be analyzed and spit out with an x y or z as a result and that way we can remove the emotion make the decision and then add in the context of the environment and and implement from there so uh i think that the the data is going to be very important um i don't have a, a background of knowledge on where chat gbt makes its decisions from or any of the AI sources, but um, my assumption would be it's it's based in 
available data. So then that made us be, we, we get to continue increasing the amount of data collection that we have and implement that in and then kind of go from there. Yeah. In fact, you know, I was talking to Adam Shea, who's the guy who invented Siri, and he was talking about ChatGPT, about, you know, you could ask some statistics, right, about players and stuff. And the funny thing is the data is like three years old, three years old. It's not even current. Uh, so that's another issue too, right? So, um, uh, hey, look, the, the other topic I want to discuss is the emergence of robotic technologies in edit sports. So, you know, we're already seeing like some robots, uh, sir, you know, for example, using rugby or American football in the NFL, they have like tackling robots, right? Tackling robots. But, you know, in the coming years, some people believe that uh, we'll see the emergence of new types of robots in sports performance. For example, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a robot gave me a massage. I'm not joking. I was like, this is interesting, actually. I just, it just felt like a real massage. Uh, but, uh, you know, do you think there's a bright future for robots in performance for any sports or not? Anybody? Yeah. I, I mean, this is larger than sport <laughs> as far as robots and, and their involvement in human society. You know, you have electric cars that are they safe to be fully self-capable drivers? Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think that as we continue to put data into these robots and, and test and retest, they're going to be successful in, in moments, but there, there is at this point a sensitivity to human interaction that like, I would go get a haircut from a robot, but I'm not going to do it for the first time before my wedding, you know, but I may do a little offshoot robot haircut to try it out. So I think that mm. as far as you know, we've been using kind of robots as far as machinery for sport, you know, we'll use the the soccer ball shooter thing or for football puns, mm -hmm. it shoots it out like that's kind of its own robot. And now if we could calculate something to help the system, I guess, uh, be a bit more reactive to the the real environment of sport, that could be helpful. Um, but I, I think that if we can as far as medical and performance teams, if we can continue using machinery and um, technology to find objective data and provide objective data measures in sporting environments, then it will it will really help. Now, how that goes, I don't, I don't know how that how that'll go technology, but let yeah. me know so I can invest in that in that business in the stock market. <laughs> I, I think the closest thing in basketball is the rebounder. Uh, I know you could put in um information on like how you want certain drills if you want to shoot threes if you want to shoot at the elbow um you know if you want it to be if you want to be moving if you, you could determine the speed uh, you know how quickly you want the, the the rebound to be and things like that nature so that's the closest thing i could think of as a robot the cool thing about it it gives you percentages it tells you your makes and miss tells you where you shot from and things like that and so um I, I like it because it helps with the coaches, for example. I mean, not all coaches could be on the floor. Um, players could also come in and do, get some extra work in. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I, you know, having robotics in sports kind of makes sense, just depending on what it is. Um, but so far, we're currently using it to a certain degree. Um, but I just think it's how we use it matters, you know, so. Yeah, good point. Good examples. Yeah. Uh, Pierre, what do you see? Yeah, I could see, you know, similar to Bill, uh, kind of a unique example. 
uh, a goaltender in, in hockey who wants to work on, you know, taking shots through traffic, having to fight around screens, and you want, you know, high-velocity shots coming in, but you don't want your own players potentially standing in the way and getting hit in the foot and breaking a foot or something like that. So, you know, maybe there's an application where those robots in the future could be the ones who are, you know, providing goaltender screens and moving back and forth, something like that, and you're not putting your own players at risk. Um, you know, so there could be applications for it. Um, I think Adam brings up a great point that, you know, robots in society is probably a much larger conversation than robots in sports specifically. So I'm curious to see, I, you know, I subscribe to those, uh, you know, emails or, or, or tweets or whatever they are from the MIT lab who has the guy who has the robot now climbing up the stairs and then coming back down and all the new things that they can do. So I think it's an exciting field and how that interacts with sports, I think is still a ways away. So um, you know, I don't have too much insights other than maybe some of those small examples, uh, like the goaltender kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's funny that you said that, Alexi, because I every time when I was with the team, every city I went to, especially when I went to like Boston, I would try to go to the uh, to the labs and just try to talk to these engineers because the engineers like, you know, they they need people like us in a sense, you know, because, you know, we're, we're, we're in it daily. We understand what's needed. You know, you know, we have a wish list of things. And for them, they have a device that's cool, but they don't know how like it could, it could apply to day to day. And so uh, I've seen a lot. You know, I was just reading about this thing called the alter ego. Have you guys heard of that one? It was like a little device that connects to I forgot exactly oh. where it connects, but it just basically how you think you and it will kind of like type in the stuff for you. And you could Google with just by thinking. It was just interesting. You know, I, I only know so much about it because I just read it today, but it was called alter ego and it was out of M.I.T. And so, uh, you know, me as a practitioner, I try to think of all ways. How can I use that? Um, but um, but, you know, you know, so far, it's so funny is nowadays um, wearables is, is, for example, in the NBA and the CBA, the collective bargain agreement, wearables is in there in terms of like how it should be um, um, used with the players. And one of the things is it has to go through a list. I'm assuming the NHL and other, other leagues are the same, but um it has to be on a list and, you know, say so it has to be vetted and make sure that it's testing what it's supposed to be testing, doing what it's supposed to be doing. And one of the things it says that you have to explain in layman terms what, what metrics you're using and has, and, 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 and has to show how would it benefit them as a basketball player. So there's like, so, so much is involved when it comes to collecting information and things like that. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, it's a good, good point. Uh, maybe Pierre, what is your take on Robots, yeah, robotics. I mean, we can, it's interesting how, how it relates to our sport, you know. Uh, I, I think, call me crazy, but it's got a big future. And I, I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime or at least in my professional lifetime, but I can see so many applications, you know. Um, you know, we use the dummies, you know. You can, have, you can program dummies through the characteristic of the opponent on set pieces. You can have, you know, we already have some mechanical walls that can jump, you know. But you could have robots who can jump, you know, reproducing, reproducing what the opponent does. It's a big, pro- not a big problem, but it's one of the challenges. Uh, we're not talking performance here, we're talking tactics. That, you know, when you have 11 guys against 11, uh, when you have the scout team, it's never easy, you know, whether you're the, the team is going to start the next day or we're playing the scout team to exactly reproduce what the opponent does. Uh, sometimes you end up having the scout team beating the starting team the day before, which is never ideal if you're a coach, you know. So I can see you know, based on the same images that we have, the same contacts that we have in labs, I can see these guys being able to deliver, you know, four or five robots, you know, and programming their movement patterns and, 
and what they do tactically and synchronize them in a way that can exactly reproduce what you know a team does. Again, how long is it going to take? How many teams are going to invest? How efficient it going to be? I don't know, but the applications are out there, no question. Yeah, that's a good, good point. I just thought about also uh, surgery, right? Uh, one of my friend, Dr. Ting, has a robotic arm. Uh, he did surgeries on like Tiger Woods and because you get the exact cut that you need, but that's more on the surgery side, right? That's not something on the, for training or anything like that. Uh, and also Elon Musk, right? You guys know Elon Musk, the uh, CEO of uh, Tesla and SpaceX, is going to launch those uh, big robots, right, that you can use in your home, but that's more for the consumer, right? Um, so, hey, last topic I wanted to cover is uh, about the stability in the world of elite sports. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, and I mean, you guys know this, but more than anybody else, you know, in elite sport, it's all about winning. And, you know, when the head coach get let go, can sometimes have consequences on the performance staff or even medical staff, right? So how do you how to cope with the level of instability in elite sports, right? It's a, it's a tough question, right? So you have to accept it. That's part of the job, right? <laughs> Anybody? I just talk. Uh, I mean, sure. I mean, it's fresh for me, so I'm, I'm going to let my friends talk, and I'll go next. But yeah, I can give you a lot of feedback on this topic in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think for me, when when I started getting into pro sports, I kind of like um, understood that it was um, it wasn't like really stable. Uh, especially when I became president of the NBA Strength Coach Association, I saw a high turnover of strength coaches. And at that time in the CBA, uh, it didn't state that a strength coach had to be hired by a team. So um, what we did as a group, uh, our association was able to include strength coaches um, to be uh, uh, made it mandatory for each team to hire a head strength conditioning coach and assistant. So now it's, it's required for each team to have one. So that was our way of kind of like uh, having some kind of stability. Um, but, but, but of course, there's still the chance of you getting let go and things like that. Um, I, I think that um, for me personally, I, I try to um, keep myself, um, I don't want to say occupied, but, you know, in other things. But that didn't take, away, take me away from my current position. Um, mm-hmm. One of them was teaching. And so um, I always taught online since I was a GA. Um, I taught in I taught in in the classroom environment as well, especially during the lockout, and that kind of set me up to um, to transition without any concerns. And so, and teaching was for me was like a win win situation because whatever I was teaching is what I was doing. And mm-hmm. so, anything that I was trying to like in terms of research and stuff, I was actually applying it. So it was you know I, I was double dipping per se. Um, but then that helped me uh, when I decided to leave um, the NBA last season. Um, I was able to, you know, basically pick up more classes with no concerns. Uh, so that's the other reason why I went ahead and got my doctorates. Uh, education was a big piece of it uh, because what what I wanted to do is get myself a doctorate that could transition into other things, right, such as teaching or in a healthcare setting. Um, because um, you know, I what I didn't want was, you know, I'm in my fifties. Basically, I didn't want to be in a position where um, I couldn't be doing the same things I used to do when I was younger, if that made any sense. But I knew that I had a lot of uh, experience that I could share with students. And so that's kind of like what I did personally to help me transition or to set myself up in an unstable environment. Uh, But the biggest thing is I was in the league for a long time. 
And what set me, what, what helped me was just me to continue doing my job um, the way it should be and beyond. Um, always had a niche in terms of um, creating a, a great relationship with the players, the staff, the coaches. Um, it was never about me. And so I think that really helped me uh, in terms of um, staying uh, within a league that was, uh, well, within a profession that was unstable. But, um, but I always made sure that I was prepared for the transition. Yep, uh, great points, uh, Bill. So any, anybody wants to talk about that topic? Yeah, I should. Um, yeah, I can you know, go. I, I, okay, go. Uh, I'll, I'll go quickly because I've been fortunate, I guess, worked for one organization uh, the first six years of my career, and I've actually had the same head coach under all six of those years. We've had some other changes uh, throughout the organization, so there's definitely been some turnover, um, but I haven't yet experienced you know, the big shift uh, of having a head coach leave. But, you know, I, I think about what Adam said to a similar, to a different question earlier uh, in the conversation about, you know, if you inherit GPS and you're trying to use GPS in a non-GPS world, or if you're trying to teach a concept to someone who, you know, doesn't connect to it, then obviously that's challenging. And I can speak to trying to adopt new technologies in an environment that maybe is not uh, conducive to them, or even just the, the lack of stability of when your team goes on a winning streak versus when it goes on a losing streak, or your best player is playing well, or he's not playing well. And how does that environment change on a day-to-day -day basis? So I think from that perspective, I think I can speak to how, how unstable it can be on a daily basis uh, in pro sports and that you have to both accept that, but also, you know, understand, appreciate your role in trying to provide stability in a world that's not stable, you know, particularly for players who maybe one day they're getting yelled at by the coach and then the coaches, you know, in the coach's doghouse, well, you can be that stabilizing force for that athlete or for that player to, to get them back to their process, get them back to the things that made them successful in the past. And then when that player does bounce back and is stabilized, you know, there's going to be another player. We have 25 players on our roster, maybe a little bit bigger than uh, an MLS or, uh, or an NBA team, but certainly smaller than a football team. So there's going to always be somebody who, um, you know, who is, is, is falling victim to that, you know, lack of stability in the, in the, the flux of the game and, and what's happening. So uh, I think you have to accept it, but also recognize your role and how you can affect that both positively and negatively. Yeah, no, great point, uh, Alexi. Uh, who wants to go next? I go. Um, okay. Um, oh, you go. So, yeah, I can go. Um, so two weeks ago, I was coaching in the Premier League, <laughs> and now you know I'm I'm talking to you guys from my home in France. So, talking about stability and everything else, um, this is definitely you have to accept it. And I did when I moved from when I decided to have to move from Toronto when you know I was. Uh, a top department in a top club in MLS with, you know, stability and vision, um, you know, and the main, the main byproduct and the main risk I was taking by going to the, uh, to the Premier League is, is, you know, uh, being in a situation where you don't win three, four, you know, for like three, four weeks in a row. And then all of a sudden, you know, because in our sport, there's promotion and relegation, big difference compared to the majority of American sports. Um, you know, the the deciders are deciding that it's getting a little too close to losing a, a massive amount of money if the team goes down, and they decide to make a coaching change, knowing that this time, you know, my contract with the head coach. Um, to lead me to my next point, 
um, I've been chasing the I've been chasing the dream of having a, a performance department, you know, that belongs to a club that is stable with experts, uh, you know, in their field developing um, techniques, best practices, and no matter who the coach was, at least have this functioning. And I think I've reached that with the Galaxy, but eventually, at the end, no matter how you twist it, you always at the mercy of. A coach, number one, because you know to be efficient in what you do, you have to be aligned with the head coaches and and make sure that you know you have room uh, uh, to to do what you can do, support him the best way you can, and and ideally um, that coach is going to give you uh, you know his philosophies aligned with with yours can be efficient. So that coach is number one. Number two are the deciders upstairs, and it's even and it's even the bigger decision again whether it's any league, you know they. Uh, you know, excuse my friends, but when the shit, when the shit hits the fan, you know, how strong, you know, can you have a long-term vision? Can you be secure in your position to uh, to know that, you know, at the end, we there are some parameters we don't control. And if the job is, if the, if the work is good, um, the chances are that you're going to be successful eventually. And and that's what, that's what happens. Um so I've given up on this model, to be honest with you. I think it's possible. You can go to, you would find um, deciders, you would find uh, general management, you would find coaches that would be, you know, that would be, and the condition would be such that you could have a well-functioning uh, high-performance department over time, but you're much more likely to end up in the other situation. So having been a victim myself of um, enlarged staff, head coaches who want to come to sign to clubs only if they come with six, seven, eight, ten, twelve people in football at times. Um, I came to realize that, you know, again, I've been a victim of it, but I also understand why they do it. You know, when you arrive in a, you know, I think in MLS, MLS is starting to resemble a little bit uh, what, what the, the, the rest of the leagues are around the world because, you know, the turnover is now faster, even if there's no relegation. Um, but again, when you arrive in a club, when you know your time is counting from the second you arrive, you have to have results. Having a, a staff of X, you know, let's, let's, let's call it five, six people that know each other, that know how to function, that there's no time to adapt to each other. There's no um, awareness about dynamics between coaches that wouldn't know that each other. There's no craps. No cracks up where the players could could sneak in. I come to believe that, at least from a short term perspective, that's the way to go. You know, long term, I I still believe that you know if if you have experts in the background that optimize technology, that know exactly how they do, that that can deal with enough players to for each player to optimize the potential. I still think that's the way to go. But too often you would have to uh, to deal with the head coaching rotation, and and this will become too uh, too challenging. So, long story short, that's the way it is. You know, unless you don't have to results uh, in pro sports anytime soon, that's the way it will be. Um, but there are still ways that if you align the vision, if you align with the people, there will be uh, there will be examples of. Of persons who can work long term and do a very good job in the performance uh, world. Unfortunately, I think it's it's the exception more than the rule. Yeah, all right. All great points, uh, Pierre. 
And I certainly hope you find a, a, a new uh, team, a new challenge very soon. So, um, so hey, I'm uh, not Adam, you... about it, but again, you okay. choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, for me, my experiences and what I've seen across the landscape is it's a commitment to the space that we're stepping into. So obviously we're all aware that when we take a role within a, a sports setting, the coaching staff management, whomever it is, even if we're under a, a contract of a certain amount of years, um, there is the chance that that gets that gets cut early um due to coaching change management change etc um as i've stepped out of traditional sports and been more on the the private sector of, of sports therapy i've been seeing the differences in in practitioners goals and kind of intentional aspirations of is my goal to be in a team setting to win a championship or is it to work with this one individual athlete and make them the best athlete they could possibly be. And although that second part is the goal of the first part, unfortunately, or fortunately, unfortunately, whomever you ask, the first part is what matters most in the sporting context. So even as a medical or performance provider in a sporting environment, our, our goal is obviously the, the health and wellness of these athletes and their performance, but winning takes all in these positions. So I've been seeing actually a shift and, and I'm, I'm interested to see if you all have too of this more, you know, instead of having a, a performance medical staff of five or, you know, three to eight people per se for a team, you're starting to see that, but then different athletes are beginning to have their own private therapists or private athletic trainers, performance coaches, outside where that's i think significantly more stable because if the athlete has a bad game or if the team loses or head coach gets you know sacked you're still tied into some type of of positive scenario hopefully of course um but that's part of the game that we play when we take a job within a sports setting um and i think that even though we try to align ourselves in the normal society of you know you know stereotypical having the the white picket fence house having the family having everything stable we know it, maybe it's subconscious but in the back of our minds that being in professional sports that is up in the air and we end up having a, a good conversation with a significant other family friends whomever that this is the decision we've made and these are the the potential if you want to call them consequences or effects of our decision um and it's obviously a, a bit of an ache or pain when things do end up going in, in the the so-called negative direction but um it, it's all we can do so to kind of summarize what we've been talking about i would say we've been talking about the shift from subjective uh subjective skills to objective to now even replacing humans with the abilities that we're providing. And I think when we can begin to really ground ourselves in these objective portions of practice, then if, it, if a coach comes in and he looks and says, hey man, or she, whomever, look, Adam has been able to obtain a 95% player availability or to increase players' 
uh, on-field high-speed um, max up by 3% or whatever it is, that's a, that's a pretty powerful PowerPoint slide if we can provide that. But oftentimes we get caught up, and myself included, in the day to day to day of, as Alexi had said, the day to day instability, which that, that, in my mind, that concept of day to day. And so from that, it's like, well, how do we, how do we standardize something that if the coach changes, we may even, we may have some type of opportunity to stay or, you know, we, we sleep in the bed we made and, and it's okay. And then we, we go from there, but. It, it's a tough one, man. I don't think there's a there's an answer. Hey, Julian, let me add. Uh, I'm gonna add, let me add three things. Um, what helped yeah. me? So three things that helped me was um, number one is I always had a place called home. Like no matter what team I'm I'm with, no matter who I get hired, I have a place called home. And Orlando's my home. So I when I left Minnesota, I just I shut that door at the uh, the rental and I just drove straight down, which was the longest ride ever. But <laughs> and then. Um, the other thing is uh, learning how to negotiate your contract, right? Um, if you have a one and one, you know, whereas one's guaranteed, the other one's non-guaranteed, that's a tough one, especially if you have a family and you're trying to move. I just don't see you moving your family and then then not getting that second one picked up. And so depending on the structure com- uh, of, of your contract, I know one book that helped me was um, the things they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. And one of the things they talked about was the, how to negotiate a contract. And so I, I actually mm-hmm. used that a lot and, uh, and, and it helped me a lot in terms of how, so I always had a long-term deal and I always got what I asked for and then some. And so, and I think that helped me in terms of stability per se. And so, um, and you know, I forgot the, the third thing was, it was uh, the contract um, on basically, on basically it's the same thing, always having a place called home. So I would go there, I would work it, but you know, since we travel so much, you know, it was like, I was never there in the city anyway even during the summers, I mean, pro sports, you know, especially in the NBA. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. We were talking about being hired by an athlete. Um, as you all know, the NBA, these players, they do make a lot of money to where they can hire their own staff. And again, it's the same concept with the team that you would with the player is how do you negotiate your contract? What do you guys both agree on in terms of stability? Because that player could come and go. That player could get hurt and not play again. So what happens to you, you know? And so, and I think it's, I think it's very wise for that person, whatever situation he's getting into, um, he has to think of a long-term plan in terms of if, if he's in an unstable situation, what is my end game? Where do I want to be? And then and what is, what is, what will it take for me financially to get there? How much money am I going to save? Where's my 401k? All those things matter. Um, you know, me, fortunately I was uh, when, when I was let go the first time. So I've, I experienced one of the things Tim Gabbett told me, uh, I know we all know Tim Gabbett. Tim Gabbett said to me, he said, now you could tell everybody you worked in pro sports because I got let go. <laughs> but it wasn't because I, I did a bad job or nothing. Yeah. It was just they were cleaning a house. It was just one of those things, you know, and I had opportunities when, when I left, but it didn't make sense for my family at that time. And so now I feel like I'm in a position, whatever makes sense for me and my family. So if I wanted to go in pro, pro sports, you know, there's certain things I look for. Uh, I'm not going to go for a one year deal because it wouldn't make sense. So I think those are things to consider when it comes to uh, being in an environment that's unstable. Great point, Bill. Awesome, Bill. Thank you. Great points, Bill. I mean, mean, it's funny because we have similar similar experiences, you know. Um, The the massive point about having a place that, uh, having a home, 
you know, some, somewhere you can go back to right away. Uh, there's no transition. Uh, this is why I'm here, by the way. Uh, as soon as I could, the rest of the coaching staff that's in England, um, again, sometimes it's due to different contracts. And uh, you, if you're lucky to reach a point where you have the luxury to you know, negotiate in a way that makes you comfortable, because, you know, early on, you have to make concessions. But later on, you say, no, this is what I want, because you know that eventually the end will come. So that two very good points. Uh, another very good point I think you made is that the trap you fall into when, when clubs are making decisions, and by club, I mean people, is that you always take it too personally. And, uh, and, and sometimes this is just what it is. It, this decision is not personal. This is just part of the business. And they, uh, they make sporting decisions. And what you can only do is go back to the old saying, you know, control what you can control. Do a good job. Um, try to optimize the time that you have and, and be good at what you do. And if that's the case, then obviously your reputation is always at stake and you'll be known and hopefully you, not hopefully, but more than likely you'll rebound somewhere else. But again, the decisions are strictly result-based, you know? And if you get to the point where that's not a personal decision, it's result-based because, you know, the team hasn't enough, then, then that's the part that you have accept that you have to accept, and, and that's perfectly fine. And my last thing I would say is also know who you're going to work with. You know whether it's a head coach, whether it's uh, someone from management. You know, make sure you align and make sure you can you, you, you control or you have a good grip of what the vision is. Uh, are the people really true? Uh, are they true to their vision? And the people you work with day to day, you know, are, are you compatible? And if that's the case, then that's a good situation. Yeah, makes sense. So, look, guys, we we at the uh, end of the, awesome. the podcast interview. So, look, I want to thank you guys for your time. Great conversation, as always. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank Definitely. you, guys. Julian, thanks for bringing together such a great, great group job. here too. I really enjoyed uh, listening to everybody else's answers. So that was uh, that was awesome. Thank you for pulling us all together. No problem. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you for listening. To access past episodes and other research, articles, and analysis of sports technology, please visit our website, theupside.us. Subscribe to the Upside newsletter and receive full access to our sports tech business letter and website. Royalty-free music is provided by ibaudio.com. The Upside podcast provides timely insights and interviews with global leaders in sports technology. Until next time, Keep looking to the upside.